we started a series last week, Moses, the Gospel According to Moses. It might seem like an odd title, but the truth is gospel means good news. And particularly in our context, gospel means the good news about Jesus. And one of the things that, that we as Christians can do, we, ha- we live in a time when we're, we're blessed to be able to do this. We get to look back at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. And we can see Him there very clearly. The people alive at the time, and even for centuries after that, were still waiting for Jesus. So they kept wondering what some of that stuff meant. What is this all leading to? What's it working toward? We're blessed to know, to be able to know anyway. And so we can kind of look back and see some things that were there all along. Good news that was there in in the life of Moses all along, but that, that maybe was seen and maybe wasn't in the past before Jesus. So turn over to the book of Exodus. We're going to start at the end of chapter 2, verse, well, not the end, kind of halfway through, verse 11, and get some background there for what we see in chapter 3. <clears throat> One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Well, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Before we go on, just look at what happens here. Last week we looked at the events surrounding the birth of Moses and his protection as he went to go live with uh, under the care of Pharaoh's own daughter. We saw in that all the hand of God. But now we see he's grown up. It skips. And I mentioned before there are a lot of parallels between the way that the Gospels are written about Jesus and some of the things that happened in Jesus' life and the things that happened in Moses' life. Like last week, uh, Moses is uh, subject to a law, his parents really more than him, subject to a law that said that every uh, Israelite child, every Israelite boy rather, under two years old is to be killed. Same thing happens later when Jesus is born. Herod issues almost an identical edict. And where did Jesus end up to escape that edict? He ended up in Egypt. And where is Moses in all of this? He is in Egypt. So there's just that interesting parallel of both the peril that they were in and also where they ended up during that. And it's just kind of, you know, interesting parallels in Scripture and, and not without reason, not coincidental. Here, not totally parallel, okay? Uh, Moses' life takes an interesting turn here. It's not one we spend a lot of time on very often, this, this problem he had of, of getting so angry that he murders a man. And, and we're not going to spend too much time on that particular part here, but it's, it's background that gets him to where he is. It shapes who he is. And it's the first time that we actually see one of Moses' weaknesses. And it comes back. You remember that Moses, we'll get to this later, but Moses doesn't get to enter into the promised land of Canaan because he got angry and struck the rock with his staff, which was disobedience to the way that all that was supposed to happen. He let his anger get the best of him. So we'll, we'll come back around to that. But this was one of his struggles. We've all got them. Yours may be just like his. It may not be. But Moses, very early on in the story, God reveals to us, you know, this is, this is a guy. 
Okay, Moses is a man with all of his weaknesses and all of his warts and his strengths. And for whatever reason, God chooses this man, right? And it it was already obvious God didn't choose him at the bush. God had already chosen him at the basket. That's already obvious. But he sees this Israelite, and he identifies already. This is important for us. He already understands at least something of who he is and who his people are and the circumstances under which he lives and what that means to his people. That's why he struck out. That means that the promise that was kept or the promise that was made by the, the, his mother and when his sister makes that arrangement for her to be his, his nanny was kept. She let him know who he really was. We have no idea how. Kind of like this is another, probably an unimportant parallel, but a parallel nonetheless. Just like with Jesus in the Gospels, we see him as a baby, we see him at 12, and then we get nothing, right? And it's kind of the same thing with Moses. We see him in a, in a, as a baby, we see him taken care of, and then we get nothing for a very long time. But whatever happened in that gap, he had come to terms with who he really was. Not really the son of Pharaoh, not just an adopted son or a grandson of the Pharaoh, not just an adopted uh, son of Pharaoh's daughter, but that he was an Israelite. He was a Hebrew, probably more accurate at this point. And he identified with who he really was. And as such, when he saw one of his brothers being mistreated and beaten, it made him angry. Now, on that point, that's probably right, isn't it? It's probably a righteous indignation that was the spark of all of that. He was right to be angry when he saw someone abused. He was right to be angry when he saw the slavery and the misuse of his people. That was right. But where he went with that anger, well, that's a problem, isn't it? And he knows that. So he flees. And then we see here at the end of that paragraph that he's sitting down by a well because he has now figured out they know what I did. It's interesting, Scripture bothers to tell us that he had looked all around. He is so sure nobody saw what he just did. Kind of like the Garden of Eden. Nobody saw that fruit, right? Let's go hide in the bush. Very similar actions taken by Moses. This is what sin does to to us, isn't it? All of us. We make mistakes, Then the first thing we do is make sure nobody saw those mistakes, and then we go hide, right? Over and over again. That's what I do when I fall on ice, by the way. It's not sin, when I fall on ice, the first thing I do is look around. Nobody saw that, did they? There's always somebody who saw it. And the second thing I do is, like Moses, I get angry. I hate it when I fall on ice. I don't have to worry about that much here, do I? doesn't happen very often. But uh, everywhere else I've lived, it happened often. The, uh, the fear and the shame drives him out into what, for, for somebody who grows up in Egypt and, and at the capital, must have felt like the wilderness even though I don't know that you'd really call it the wilderness uh, exactly. But that's where he ends up. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And then they came home to their father, Ruel, and he said, How is it that you've come, come home so soon today? And he said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us. And watered the flock. And he said to the daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left this man? Is this not hilarious? The father, we'll take this out of kind of stilted stained glass language. The father says, Oh, really? Well, where is this boy? (laughs) Why did you leave him? One of you should have married him. And so he goes and finds him, invites him 
Long story short, Moses gets married, settles down, starts working for his father-in-law. Okay, that's, that's the long story short. And he stays there for a long time. Look at verse, uh, or chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush isn't burned. And when the, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Can you imagine a moment where you're, you know, not even the miracle. Sometimes we focus on the burning bush and it's not burning up. And, you know, that's, it's cool. And that's kind of hard to imagine because everything around here just burns right up. But to hear those words, wherever they came from, whether it's, it's the burning bush for Moses or from the clouds at the Mount of Transfiguration, to hear, I am the Lord your God. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That would be wild, wouldn't it? Just absolutely incredible. But I think we'd probably react a lot like Moses did. His first reaction was, oh, wow, I shouldn't be here. You wonder if it didn't run through his heart, through his mind. I've been running for 40 years, and now God's got me. You ever wonder if it ran through his mind that this might be about the murder and not about a calling? Maybe he was ashamed and hid his face. It's a lot like what happens in the garden, isn't it? He says, I'm not, he says, I'm afraid to look at him. There's a sense of an unworthiness there. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. I think that had to be such a sense in the way of relief for Moses, for what he's really there for. Both, okay, it's not about that, but why was Moses in the land of Midian in the first place? Because he had gotten so angry, because his people were abused that he'd actually taken a man's life. But the core of that was his concern for his people and for their mistreatment. And he may have thought before, he may have thought when he took that man's life, that his position as a Hebrew in the house of Pharaoh, that there was something he could do for those people. Maybe he envisioned something like, this hadn't happened yet at his point, but something like what Esther did. But that never happened. He, he may have thought he blew his chance. I think that may be how we would look at it. I had a position where maybe I could have helped. Maybe I could have done some good. Maybe I could have, have helped some of these people to gain their freedom, but I blew it. I let my anger get the best of me, and my opportunity is gone. It's all shot. What he hears in the voice from the burning bush is also a second chance for Moses. Yeah, you blew it the first time, but I've heard their cries, and we're going to do something about it, and I'm choosing you. And that's how this, this breaks down as you look at, at what is said from the bush. Israel had cried out to God over and over again, and you see that even back in chapter 2, that that Israel was, was being beaten and enslaved and they were constantly crying out to the Lord, Lord, save us. 
And Moses is the guy that God has chosen. He never would have chosen himself at this point in his life. Maybe earlier, but not anymore. He doesn't see himself as a Savior. He's found a place to hide, and he's content where he's hidden until this day where God confronts him. And I think we can identify with that. There are things that we think are going to keep us from ever being able to really serve God in any meaningful way. Mistakes that we may have made, and we may be hiding in our own little Midian out there by the well with our sheep, just trying to stay low and under the radar, and if, if I don't make too much trouble, maybe God will let me in, right? And it doesn't have to be that way. And it wasn't that way for Moses. And God said, I have heard your people's cry. I listen to your prayers. That's real. This stuff is good news, isn't it? This is gospel. God hears His people when they cry out to Him in anguish. When we sing, like in, in Psalm 61, Hear my cry, O Lord. When we say things like, When my heart is overwhelmed, please lead me to the rock that is higher than I. God actually hears those prayers. He hears our pleas. He hears the cries of children in homes where they are abused. He hears the cries of people in places where they are oppressed. He hears the cries of the poor. Over and over again, that theme runs through the book of Psalms. It runs through the Gospels. It runs through the instructions that the council of Jerusalem gave to Paul. Be mindful of the poor. Over and over again, God hears. But God never just hears. God answers, and He helps, and He frees. And in this case, not only had He heard, but He decided to, for whatever reason, to use Moses. Moses questions that. We'll look at that next week. Moses argues with him over whether or not that was the right choice. And that's not what I want to look at today. What I want to look at is, is the God part of this picture, the gospel stuff, the good news. God always hears. God always answers. And for whatever reason... God chooses to use His people. Uh, go on over to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I forgot to tell you this, by the way, but if you're on that U version, uh, you can follow along, look at live events, and we're there, and uh, in, in the outline's there. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. I don't know if you can see that or not. <clears throat> and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is head, is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And we say, okay, what's that got to do with Moses and what's that got to do with me? When God wanted someone that he could use, he found a man who thought he was too damaged to be used. He found a man who was too humble to think he was going to be the great answer to everything. One of the places we have to find ourselves to be used by God is right there. When you look at Moses, that's what he had. When you look at some of the other folks in Scripture, when you look at Esther, who, who really, even though she was queen, never acts in any way arrogant, but it seems to be a pretty humble woman, and, and yet 
courageous, God uses her. In fact, she has to be talked into it as much as Moses did, doesn't she? Her, her uncle has to come to her and say, you know, you're the one in the place, you're the one in the position. How do you know but that God hasn't brought you to such a time as this for this very reason, for this very purpose? We are all sinners. We're all forgiven in Christ. We're all imperfect. We all know that there's no reason God would ever pick us to be the next Moses, the next Esther, the next Ruth, the next whoever comes to your mind as a hero of faith. That's the thing. Neither did they. Instead, God put people in their lives. Here he says in the church, it's apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And their job is to to help build up the church and equip the church so that the church understands that it is everyone's part and everyone's role to work in the kingdom. That became Moses' job too. Later on, as all of this unfolds, first he steps up and he is an incredible leader, but he gets to a point where his father-in-law, Jethro, has to come to him and say, Moses, you can't handle this all by yourself. This is not all yours to do. And so he starts developing more and more and more leaders. But we were talking about before a problem we have, we have dirt that gets in our baptistry water. It's not the worst thing that gets in there. That, that's, that would be the stuff that washes off of us. But, the, but, but we got this, this gritty dirt problem that we just can't seem to solve. You know, it just keeps getting in there, whether it's from air ducts or whatever. Okay, small problems. And Jesse was making a joke that in Jerusalem at the temple, so they had to have somebody who shoveled the ashes out every day. You think that wasn't an important job? He was talking about how much, how, can you imagine how much ash there was Think about like at, at the day of Pentecost or some, some big event like that or the dedication of the temple, how much there had to be to do. Every part had a part. Every one was a part. And that's the design of the church. Moses would learn this over time. God could use him to learn this because God kept working on his humility and working on it at the same time, his leadership and all of those things. But it all started right here. Moses, will you go? Actually, he doesn't really so much ask. He kind of says, Moses, I've chosen you to go, so go. It's more a matter of obedience than, than just plain willingness. But Moses was willing. He was scared to death. He was not quite so sure it would all work out as planned. That comes out in his questions. But he did it. Imperfect as he was, ashamed of his past as he was, he did it. And every one of us can come up with excuses like that of why we, we could or we couldn't. But what we need to remember is that Moses was sitting here in the middle of gospel. God hears our cries. And as much as he's heard Israel, he will hear Moses. I hear you, I will equip you, and I will send you. What I need you to do is go. I was looking at a, uh, a list of how different places answer the phone. I, I think that's kind of interesting because some of them were, were odd. Uh, usually when an American answers the phone, they say, Hello, right? They say when Germans answer the phone, they say their last name. So you would answer the phone, you'd say Glasscocker. You would say Foreman. And, and that's it. I grew up uh, in San Angelo. My grandparents' neighbors were, uh, he was a retired colonel, and he was from somewhere up in New York. And he would, they answered their phone. They were so formal. He was, he was formal retired military, if you know what I'm saying. And so... They would always answer their phone, and I always knew, felt like they were too ritzy for me and my family, you know. They would always say, 
This is, oh, what was their name? And I just lost the Hutchinson. This is the Hutchinson residence. Who may I ask is speaking? And I was like, oh, that's too many words to be answering the phone. You know, that's, that's not going to work. That's just too many words. But let me tell you, the New Yorkers don't do that anymore. When I was up there, like, yo, <laughs> none of this, who may I ask is speaking. Who, who even says that anymore? Uh, then you have uh, in Spain, I thought this was funny. In Spain, they say, speak, <laughs> get at it. <laughs> Another country, it was listening, listening. And they said in China, I don't know how this, I don't know how, I'm not going to say it in Chinese. I don't know how this translates, but it was, hey, hey, what's up? <laughs> kind of a thing. I have no idea if that's true. That's what this list of things said. And we, we answer things different ways. When, when God speaks to Moses, Moses is, is kind of afraid. He hides his face and and all of that. When, uh, when I think it was Zechariah who said, uh, how, he, who said, speak, Lord. When uh, Isaiah gets the call of God, what does he say? Here am I, send me. Ready to go. Let's get at it. I love that in, in Isaiah 6. Just here am I, send me. What a great attitude. But Isaiah wasn't anything more than anybody else was, was he? Except for that heart. For Ephesians 4 to work, for, for God to be able to work in you like God worked in Moses, all you have to have is that kind of an attitude. And, and Moses had fears. It's, it wasn't just, you know, a fearless thing. You've just got to have the attitude of, okay, I'll do it. Yes, Lord, I'll go. Same with Isaiah, same with so many others. In Ephesians 4, that's how this works. And he expects the whole church, not one in a church or two in a church or five in a church, a whole church to have the attitude of, yes, Lord, what, what do you want me to do? I want to challenge you to really think out these, this little exercise. That when, because we know that God calls all of us to service in the kingdom somehow, somewhere. And you don't have to look at the person next to you and say, well, I've got to do what they're doing. It may not be that because we're all different parts of the body, right? And we, we have different functions and, and different purposes, this is something you'll have to seek the Lord's wisdom on. But maybe look at it this way. One of the things that was going on in Moses' life was that the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt and they were crying out to God for help. Spend some time in prayer. Spend some time in observation. Maybe get out your newspaper. Maybe walk your neighborhood. Who around you is your people? He had his Hebrew people. Who are your people? that are crying out to God that God may need you to be Moses for. Who are those people? It may be a neighbor who's in a tough situation. It may be somebody at a meeting you go to every week. It may be somebody you work with. Maybe you are, uh, you know, I've, I've got adopted brothers and sisters. Maybe, maybe it's somebody in a foster home. Maybe it's somebody who needs a foster home. Maybe it's an exchange student. You may be saying, oh, I couldn't foster. I'm too old for that. Well, you know, I know a retired couple, once they were retired and empty nesters, they decided that, it, that every other year they were going to host an exchange student. And they did that as part of their ministry. Who might be somebody who's crying out, God, I wish there was somebody in my life who could help me with this. Because there is somebody for every single one of us here. I mentioned, uh, I think a while back, about uh, Sister Schubert's roles. This is a great example of this. There's a book called, ah, you got to take your glasses off to remember that. What's it called? Uh, Jesus, Will You Buy Me a Double Wide? Because i got a big screen TV. It's like a loose translation of the title. 
Okay? Look up double wide and Jesus, and you'll probably find double wide Jesus. You find, look up double wide and Jesus, and you will find this book. It's by, I think, Karen Zacharias. And uh, good book, really good book. One of the stories that she tells, I think it was what one, one of the events in her life, meeting this person that sparked her to write the book, is about the lady behind Sister Schubert's roles. When she was a little girl, her daddy had told her, and this was before there was a company, he had told her, you know, you've been blessed with so much. Someday, God is going to use you to bless other people. Parents, first off, you ought to be blessing your kids with things like that, and grandparents, you too. Plant those seeds in your kids' hearts. And that always was there. She always believed what her dad said. I've been blessed a lot. There ought to be some way that I can give back. Long story short, because it was later in life, she, is, she was famous for making her roles. And a lot of times she'd bring to church, they'd do a, a bake sale or something to benefit a missions thing, and she would, she would bring those roles. And one day she said, you know, I think, I think God's telling me I, I should do something more with this. There's some purpose for this. It was a, I think it was a grandmother's recipe. And so she starts going to, the, to a local grocery store. Well, could I, you know, could I sell these rolls? And they let her do it. That got big, and the next thing you know, she's got this whole company. Well, the whole time that's going on, someone else is telling her about a children's home in Ukraine and the bad shape that it was in and these kids who were crying out. And God heard. And she decided that a certain percentage of every package of, of those rolls that she sells goes straight to that children's home in Ukraine. And that's still true. That was years ago. And you just, and you know, I saw the rolls. I never knew. She doesn't make a big deal out of it. It's not, I don't think it's anywhere on the package. It's just a thing that she does because she's been blessed with much and her dad had planted the seed long ago that when you're blessed much, you help much. And so that's what she does. You know, it doesn't have to be. And you say, well, she's got a big company. Yeah, it didn't start that way. It started with a pan of rolls. Moses didn't start out leading a nation. He started out in exile with his people mad at him. The last thing he had heard from his people was a smart aleck saying, who are you to judge me? Right? Don't worry about where you are. Don't worry about what little you've got. That wasn't the point with Moses. God didn't come to Moses because he was a great leader. He came to Moses because he was a failed leader. He had lost any influence that he had. And that was when God could use him. So ask yourself and ask the Lord, who around me might be crying out? And it, may, it doesn't have to be all of the Hebrew people, okay? It may be a person. It may be a child. It may be a neighbor or a co-worker. It may be more. But ask God to give you an understanding of who that is. If He hears our cries, and the good news from Exodus was He does, He'll hear theirs and He'll hear your willingness. And God will use you. He says here in Ephesians 4, that's the whole purpose of the church. Get people into those places. Help them realize where that is. Support them when they get there. Encourage them along their, their way while they're working. And get them there. Church, that's our mission. That's where we are, is, is to pray. Who is it who may be crying out? And in that last blank, that's your name. You're the one who is called. Notice Ephesians 4 didn't say they, they, they. He's saying, us, we, the church, we are the ones who go in the blank. Every last one of us, both alone and together, goes right there.
Who's God crying out? Some of these things, there will be people who are crying out that it will take more than one of us to help. It may take all of us to help. Every last one of us, and we may need to go recruit some more people, right? We do, by the way, and that's because that's one of our jobs. But our name goes in that blank. Whether it's your name or the early church of Christ is called. Those right in there. Let's pray together.